Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I am excited to be interviewing Professor Zachary Lipton. Zach is an assistant professor of machine learning and operations research at Carnegie Mellon University, where he directs the approximately correct machine intelligence lab. He holds a joint appointment between CMU's ML department and Tepper School of Business, and holds courtesy appointments at the Heinz School of Public Policy and the Software and Societal Systems Department. His research spans core ML methods and theory, applications in healthcare and natural language processing, and critical concerns about algorithms and their impacts. I feel that Zach brings a really interesting blend of perspectives to bear on the multitude of different problems he tackles in his research. And as he commented in the interview, he seems to dig deep enough to leave people in the different subfields he traverses with a lot to reflect on. I really do feel that it's people like Zach who are the ones that will help this field achieve its highest potential for calling us out on our BS, questioning foundational assumptions, and really pushing us to reflect on our basic presuppositions, the ways we make claims, and the way we do science. If you haven't already, you can go ahead and subscribe to The Gradient on Substack. You'll get this podcast, as well as our newsletters and articles sent directly to your email. And if you've been enjoying the show, it would be wonderful if you'd leave us a kind review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. And now, without further ado, Zachary Lipton. I'm I'm really curious though. So I've heard you tell a bit about this story before, but I know that as you said, you were you were a jazz musician before you got into research, and I'm really curious how that kind of happened and like if um, that time being a musician still. I, I imagine it probably still influences you today in some ways. Yeah, I I was a musician. I mean, that was just like my first love. You know, I don't even know if I was like especially good at it. I think I was good at thinking my way through it. You know, like I think I, 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 like, I don't think I was like born with like great pitch or like perfect time or something. It was just stuff I worked at, but it was like my first, like it was the, you know, I, I think a lot of people talk about like, you know, like, Oh yeah, of course. Like music and math, music and math, music and math. But like the truth is like, I mean, first of all, we don't, <laughs> I think, I don't know. We're not doing the most exalted math in the world. And well, and even if we were, you know, I, I've been around some really heavy musicians and I haven't encountered a lot of great mathematicians among them. And there's a handful of people who are like strangely accomplished musicians uh, in ML, but it's actually kind of rare. You know, like Percy, I've heard, is, uh, is a formidable pianist. And uh, Oh, really? Yeah, I think he took it really seriously for a while. I think he's still, he's still like a passion of his. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you got to do something to fill up those 36 hours a day. I, I think, like, I don't think there's, like, an intellectual link. I mean, not that there's nothing, but I, I think it's more, like, at, like, a wider, wider scope, like, the moves. Like, there's something about, 
something about the way it prepares you that's like one it prepares you to be a bit self-reliant like owning your own education like you're a musician you have a lesson once a week it's like kind of like your relationship with your phd advisor or something you know they might be a little bit more involved but like it's sort of like they're checking in, they're pointing you in a direction but it's like you got to get off your butt and go you know you you get most of your information from 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 your, your most from 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 records from your peers from like figuring out what people are doing, stealing their moves, stealing their language, you know, understanding like, oh, like I see. And I think papers are very similar. You, you kind of see the routines, you see the, the, so, so I think there's like the autodidactic component. Then there's, I just think the, like the armor it gives you, you know, like I see so many people whining in the machine learning world and, and I can empathize. It's not to like be like a cold asshole, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I don't know, fix it in post, but you know, it's not that like, like, there's a lot of things that like, you know, you should take seriously and the pressure on people, whatever. And at the same time, it's like the least accomplished, least work put in, least talented, like, you know, 10 percentile, 10 percentile, 10 percentile. I mean, at least once you've gotten to the level where you're like looking at people who are doing this in school or whatever, person like their like feared outcome is getting paid like a couple hundred K or something and having like a nice job or, you know, the, the worst thing about it, somebody tells them what to do sometimes. In music, like the default is you have no work, and then like somewhere above that is like you're, you know, slogging it, like playing backup for singers and like genres of music you don't really care about. You're playing in wedding bands and like you know that, that stuff could be fun, but it wasn't why you did it. And and the rejection rate is just so 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 high, and just rejection on all fronts, like rejection from your peers, rejection like just showing up at the session and embarrassing yourself. Like so, I, I think that music. There's something about music that has some of that same like flow, or at least being a jazz musician has, has a similar kind of flow in some ways, but it's also very different, obviously. Like, you know, there's a, a lot less structure around you. There's a lot less past. There's no career fairs. There's no like, there's no fallback plan in place for you. So there's none of that. But I think, you know, maybe music gave me, I mean, it was something of that, uh, the independence and, you know, a certain way of like thinking about like owning your own trajectory. Um, not that like I went, you know, not that I went to the highest level as a musician, um, like some of the people who are my peers at the time, like obviously went a whole lot further than I did, like, you know, Jonathan Batiste and Sullivan Fortner and all those people that are, you know, now I just like I get to enjoy them as an audience member. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was, I was doing that and it was, it was a very abrupt change. I, I had uh, some medical things that kind of just totally took me out of life. And so when I came back, it was sort of like, having to learn how to play again, having to, having to get get that back together. And it happened once and it happened a second time. When it happened the second time, I was just like, I was kind of burnt at that point. I was like, I'm not going back straight to just like, I can't do that again. It was just like not emotionally, not like in the right space. And then I had a good friend who was out doing grad school in Santa Cruz. So I went and um, visited him. He's he's brilliant. He's uh, um, He got a PhD. Uh, we ended up actually getting PhD in Santa Cruz and uh, San Diego at the same time, but he was at the time he was in uh, like masters on route to a PhD in Santa Cruz, and I went out and visited him, and it was like my first time spending a couple weeks like kind of deeply immersed in like grad student life. And I knew I didn't want to do grad school and music; that just wasn't where my head was at the time. But something about being at the university, being around a bunch of people who were reading all the time, and just like kind of like reading and arguing with each other, and it's like bickering in, in, in a like a, a certain kind of like nerdy way that you know, I don't know, resonated with me. It was probably like they were all, like like a large group of people who are all like annoying in the way that like I'm normally annoying to like people in the real world. And I think that 
um, it flipped the switch for me. Like being out there, like I came back and I had a plan and, and I didn't even know like was computer science. It was like my plan was getting to grad school. And I like, I, I already like kind of made plans to take the GRE, like, you know, stole my parents' Toyota Corolla, like broke my lease on my New York apartment and like started thinking through what could it be. And, and I ended up driving across the country to the Bay Area where I put down summer 2012 with a plan of getting into PhD the following year. Well, plan of getting into grad school. I, I didn't even know that anybody would let me in a PhD. It just seemed like, you know, just felt like I was committing like abject fraud just by applying, you know. Like people have imposter syndrome, but I don't think like I don't think I had imposter syndrome. I think I was like leaning into being like a a genuine like imposter. So I think that's just that was the story. And then I don't know. I mean, I, I got lucky. I had some contacts. I had people I'd encountered earlier in life who had for some reason saw something in me that they thought I should have been an academic. And like uh, there was a biophysics professor at Columbia. I didn't even I was in a biophysicist, but we were just like. I had taught myself to code a bit to, to make some extra cash and I had built him a website and for his lab. But for whatever reason, we became friends and he was always like, he saw something, was always like, when are you going to PhD? Whenever we would hang out. So, you know, I had people like that that knew me kind of well and were willing to like go to bat for me. And like, I don't know like what they wrote. Like when I write a recommendation letter, it's like you're normally expecting like, okay, I've done some research with this person and I can... I feel comfortable like putting my reputation on the line, you know, on the basis of like, I know something about what they could do in this area. I just have no idea what these people wrote about me. Like, like, well, you know, uh, it's fun to have a coffee with or something. Clearly it had to be something good. Yeah. And, and like, I didn't get in, like we were talking about before, I didn't get into uh, like MIT or, or Stanford or Berkeley. Um, but I got lucky to get into like some great schools that were, you know, it's like, there's, um, you know, the, 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 I people find the like wrong idea from seeing like who gets faculty positions. Cause there's this huge selection bias for like who goes into very top of the rank schools. And, you know, there's a big selection for outliers, but the, the, the tale for like quality of faculty and environments is actually like, you know, tails off much, much more slowly than people realize. And there's a lot of, you know, schools that are, you know, I think now the competitiveness has gotten up across the board. Like they probably, you know, I don't think UCSD would have taken a look at me, you know, like 2020 or 22 or whatever. But in 2000, um, 2000, you know, I guess like winter 2012, 13 or whatever, like, you know, I, they were willing enough to be like, you know, okay, intriguing. Like, you know, we, we can make a few long shot bets on like high upside, high risk or something. And, and so that's the story, you know, it's uh, kind of came like changed my environment a little bit. Like the, the decision was to actually go to, go to grad school. And the secondary decision was like, what for? And at that point I was like kind of married to like, you know, I had associated the move to California at that time with like changing my life in a certain kind of way. So I was pretty like, gung-ho on like staying in california when i had a got an offer at ucsd it kind of sealed the deal yeah that's that's really interesting because from that story it sounds like it was this moment of you're you're in this somewhat intellectual possibly a little bit annoying discussion and you're like i want more of my life to look like that and so the plan is grad school yeah definitely <laughs> It was like they it was like it was sort of like they pay you to do this. 
Exactly. You know, like I wasn't yeah. like I wasn't giving up like a job making, you know, like a buck fifty at Google or something. I was like, what? Like I gotta live on thirty K. I was like like they just like let you do this shit all day. Like that was what I was doing during the day, like before before I had a gig or rehearsal or whatever. I was just sitting at the coffee shop like reading. And then, you know, trying to like, you know, blabber about whatever was, was interesting to me to whoever like didn't give a crap, you know? And then it's right. like this is your job. This is your job over here. It's like this is this is the life. Yeah. Tell me a bit about how that so you had that inertial that that sort of beginning inertia, you want to go to grad school, it ends up being CS. And now you've got this really interesting range of problems you're working at with ACMI. Can you tell me about how that kind of formed? Well, I mean, Acme is like my lab now, you know, that I'm like a faculty member who's been doing it long enough with enough students to like yeah, that, that that makes sense to like have a name for what we are, but but it didn't start off as like a collection of things. Um, and I think it's the thing that a lot of students struggle with in PhD is sort of like how much to focus and how much it's okay to roam. And I might be, I might be like a weird example in that I think most of the people who make it to somewhere like what I've been fortunate to get have. Um, like very often, like a kind of cleaner story of like, this is a person who does like, you know, theory of deep learning plus experiments. Like this is a person who does fairness or this is a person who does whatever, um, you know, but I, I, I'm far from the only floater. Um, but yeah, my path has been, you know, I, I mean, the students also struggle with this when they're like thinking of like, wait, wait, you know, what do I have to do to be marketable or what do I have to do for, you know, how, how am I going to build through a thesis? I think I really didn't worry about it too much, like, especially because I couldn't have, like, I didn't even, I didn't even know what it was to write a paper. Um, and I didn't even have any of the basic technical skills to, so I was, I was working with this extremely limited toolkit initially. So for me, it was just like, I think I had like two skills that I came in with. And one is just like a sort of like New York, like street pain in the butt, like nose for bullshit. You know, like I had a good, like, reading you know i think a lot of times a lot of very smart people read papers and just like swallow like total nonsense without balking at it just like if it was like if the claim was like slightly outside the part that's like they're the expert and i say, oh you know this paper says whatever as so i think I, I came in with that which turned out to be a very useful research skill because it's like reading a research paper is not like reading a textbook it's uh it's like like you got to find the hole and that ends up being like the opportunity you know if you can just like crystallize it enough that you know um so I think like being a good critic was one thing. And then the other thing was that I probably had a very different, um, not natural, but like at that point, you know, for some whatever combination of nature and nurture, I think at that point I had a, 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 a stronger toolkit as a writer than the people who were around me. Um, and, but that had to carry me because like I wasn't a mathematician. I couldn't code my way out of a paper bag back then. You know, I got a bit better, but now, now I'm getting worse again because, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in a different place in the stack. But I think like that sort of toolkit, like I wasn't saying like, hey, I'm going to be the guy who does healthcare and does like kind of um, robustness and adaptation and, you know, under various kinds of causal structures. And I'm also going to do the guy who does fairness and I'm also whatever. And I, I was sort of like looking, looking for a problem. You know, the first paper that I wrote was about 
uh, performance metrics, you know, and it's like, okay, this wasn't. So, so I was like reading papers, like my advisor at the time was really interested in like this sort of large scale multi-label classification type problems and, you know, how to build systems that are good, how to, uh, this is before like deep learning created some, some obvious ways that you take advantage of the fact that you have multiple tasks, which is you, you learn a shared representation across the tasks and just have, you know, things only fork in the output layer or something. Uh, so it wasn't obvious. You had a bunch of people proposing things, but it was always unclear if anything was actually working better than just training separate classifiers for each of the tasks. Um, and I was tackling this problem, but you know, my startup speed was a little bit slow because you know I wasn't like a great engineer, and I didn't like start off with a in- immediate intuitions for what to try. But I was reading these papers, and I was like seeing what how people were evaluating the systems, and I noticed that a lot of these metrics people weren't. Like these metrics were kind of weird and nobody seemed to be recognizing that they were kind of weird and it was unclear whether anyone was actually optimizing for the metrics they were evaluating on and there was this opportunity to take a close look and um eventually kind of like you know like that that was sort of um my first paper was sort of recognizing that if you actually tried to optimize these metrics you would you would engage in this kind of weird sort of thresholding behavior about what you predicted positive and what you predicted negative things like per example f1 or macro averaged f1 or micro f1 that like would result in would result in like a set of predictions that like you couldn't you couldn't even contrive like you couldn't imagine like what is the application someone would actually care about where you would actually want the predictive model to to set the thresholds in this way and on one hand like it i think was a formative thing for me because it like it was a style of paper that like in an abstract sense that i carried forward which is sort of recognizing a way in which like recognizing a pathology in the field recognizing a blind spot where it was something that maybe a lot of people had taken for granted, figuring out how to tell like a kind of complicated story that had like a technical component. But part of what made the story interesting wasn't just like interesting math. It wasn't interesting enough by itself. What was interesting was how it related to what people's like ostensible motivations were. So like I, I started doing that paper, but you know, and that was cool. It got in eventually. Um, it got rejected from ICML, and then I improved it, then it got accepted at ECML. And, you know, if it got rejected there, we could have sent it to like, OCML. But, yeah, it was, it, was, it was like this formative experience. And then at the same time, I looked at that, and I'm like, you know, I don't know. I had a conversation with my advisor and, and a friend at the time, uh, and it was sort of like, do I want to like go deeper in this? Like, is this what I want to do? Be the guy who talks about performance metrics. And I had been to some conferences where like people came to my paper and I met some of these people who like, they were like, that's my thing. Like I, I, you know, like I, I talk about rock curves for the last 40 years. And I was like, that's, that's not like, that's not, you know, like God, I'm glad somebody's doing that. But that's not my, you know, that's not going to be the, uh, that's not the mountain I want to defend or something. Sure. Um, so, so for me, it was just like, okay, I did one thing. Now, now what can I do next? Well, I, I got interested in this thing because I was sort of interested in healthcare. So the reason why I was working on this multi-label problem was, was about classifying medical documents to assist with like indexing articles in like National Library of Medicine according to like mesh headings. So at that point, I had attended the Machine Learning for Healthcare conference. Um, I met David, it wasn't even called Machine Learning for Healthcare. It was called MuckMed, which stood for Meaningful Use of Complex Medical Data, and was a symposium, not a conference. And that year that I attended, actually, like a bunch of like blonde ladies with like sunglasses came in and sat in the front row. And when everyone went out to like coffee break, they stole everyone's MacBook Pros. It was like uh, a MacBook heist. It was a very exciting, wow. you know, all all sorts of intrigue. 
but when I was there, I met one of the found the founder of the symposium or co-founder was um, this guy David Kale, who had been a data scientist at Children's Hospital. Then he moved on to uh, do a PhD at USC. So he, he had been there. He was like a year or two ahead of me in PhD. Um, and we hit it off. And he was a lot more experienced as like a quantitative researcher and working with medical data. And I was paying attention because I came in with no commitments. I wasn't like, I'm great at manipulating objects in Hilbert spaces or something. I was like, I, I didn't know anything. So I, but I didn't have any like sort of sunk cost to like, you know, focus my attention in terms of what was interesting in the field. And this is like 2014 now, maybe that, you know, um, we're, we're, we're just in the, in the wake of like ImageNet right before you're starting to hear about, you know, um, seek to seek model. It was like first starting to happen that like those papers are first getting written. It's a very small community there. So I'm kind of paying attention to that thinking, Oh, like this stuff is cool. Like this is the coolest thing happening. Cause like, if, if you don't, if you don't care, if, if you're not, if you're not like uh, caught up in the elegance of anything, because you're, you don't have a refined sense of like, you know, technical aesthetic, you're just looking at it like I was, which is as a kind of an outsider still looking at capabilities that at that point, it felt like, you know, like from a pure, like a computer could do that. Like this, this was where the action was. And so I became captivated by that. And, and I, I saw I was in a good position to see the parallel of like, oh, like what's unsatisfying about the way we used to build text classifiers is like TFIDF bag of words, throw out all the word order, like, you know, just kind of flatten everything into this ridiculous representations that you could feed it into this very rigid model, like a linear model or you know, whatever people were working with. Um, and so, you know, I was seeing a parallel between that and the way we represent, like, uh, um, well, I actually, what, what happens, it wasn't just me seeing the parallel, it was, uh, but it was, I, 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 I was seeing that as an interesting thing and, and thinking about working in medical data and talking to my friend David Kale at the same time. And I wrote a review of the literature. And, and this was kind of like how I got attention earlier in my PhD before I suddenly had, like, at some point, um, a lot of original research to stand on is that I was like, my first niche was like, as uh, that got me visible and like invited to things and have some kind of footprint outside of outside of UCSD was as like, explainer, you know, so I, I, I was writing a lot of like, you know, now you guys are more sophisticated and have like, prettier looking blogs and stuff. But I was I was writing, you know, I was better known as a blogger back then, you know, writing a lot of like a lot of like cold water, a lot of, you know, um, taking something that a lot of people were talking about in some confused way and trying to like, you know, separate like fact from fiction or whatever, this kind of stuff. And then um, it was my like research exam, which is like the second year milestone at UCSD. I picked recurrent neural networks and I kind of attitude always, especially because I was a little bit old. I knew that like the thing I was good at was writing. So I always felt like if I'm going to have to write something for school, whatever it is, like, like if you're going to like get 15 pages out of me or 20 pages out of me, it needs to be something that like that comes back to me. Like it can't just be like a throwaway. Like I'm not going to write a 20 page paper for a class that nobody's going to read. Like that was my attitude was like, screw that. So I took the, the opportunity of my research exam, which is basically like pick a topic, become an expert, write a 20 page review on it. And that's basically the assignment. I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this because it's something I want to put out there. So I'm pick a topic that is fresh enough that there aren't good pedagogical resources, has a big enough audience, people care about it, um, you know, and RNNs were just like, kind of like, 
it was perfect timing. So I put out that um, paper, and as a result, like that instantly became really popular. It was like, you know, I, I had I'd experienced that with blog posts before that, like I'd write something and, you know, tens of thousands of people would read it, but I had never had that with like something more technical. So this was still not like my original research, but it was like my perspective in a more like proper academic context. But because it's got out there right at the right time where people are looking for like an approachable pedagogical resource on RNNs, it suddenly became course material at a lot of courses. I got invited to like go to China and, you know, go to Europe and give like tutorials. And so this was before even I started implementing them for any original applications, just having like sifted through and kind of like, you know, distilled the narrative out of, you know, a couple hundred papers or something. It sort of marked me to other people as like, you know, if not the RNN expert, like, like one of the like RNN experts, like, you know, like the people who were like in, in my like vicinity, if someone was, you know, it's like the Dave, you know, Kale, who uh, I met at MuckMed, you know, he was like, oh, like, uh, you know, this is the hot thing. Like, we should talk, so I talked to my friend, Zach, he's the RNN guy. And so uh, we started talking and, you know, we saw this parallel between um, clinical time series data and NLP in the sense that you have this like kind of, um, unstructured raw data that's you have you know different different observations coming in at different times a sequence of observations some patients have 12 hours of history some have you know two weeks of history some have two months of history so it's like varying length um, kind of data so we, uh, we we wrote you know we were right at the right time to write like the first paper that was like of the modern RNN rush that was applying sort of like these modern sequence models towards uh, prediction tasks, clinical multivariate clinical time series data. And so we got that in the ICLR. And so like, why, you know, it's like, for me, like that was the path. Like I wasn't like out there being like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. Or like, these are my four areas. It was like, I was blogging about things I was interested in. I was paying attention to what was going on in the field. And then once I had this kind of thing, I started getting opportunities coming to me and I was picking the ones that, seemed exciting. And so, you know, I was very all over the place, but I think what ends up happening is like, what I warn students about is like, if you're all over the place and, you know, you meander and you kind of leave a bunch of unfinished products, projects in your wake early in PhD, like that's not a good look. You know what I mean? If someone's like, oh, you've been in PhD for four years and you started working on this and you got distracted and you're working on that, then you got distracted and you kind of never took something across the finish line. If you leave a bunch of unfinished products in your wake, then, you know, it just looks like, oh, this is somebody who's lost. But if you, everything you hit, like you kind of connect hard enough that you, you leave something solid behind, like you make a dent in that area, you do something that catches the attention of people who are working there and gives them something useful. Then it's like, people are not that worried about like, you know, okay, eventually, maybe when you when you get closer to graduation, you got to like, you know, start thinking in bigger terms than one paper. But it really buys you a lot, you know what I mean? It buys you a lot of rope if you're, and and then, and then the other thing is just that like, you know, if you're doing that, if you're following your nose and you're really hitting hard and you're thinking critically when you're doing it, that, that what ends up happening is, is, you know, it looks like this kind of like simulated annealing or something. It's like, it looks like this random process at first, but you end up like, you know, when you look back in retrospect, it's like, oh, there are certain like wells, there are certain areas where like you keep coming back to them and there's something where like, you tried that one time and you're like, okay, it was fine. Like, it was a fun project, but like, that's not what I work on primarily. 
And so I think it's easier sometimes in retrospect to be like, oh, I realize like this is not a one-off thing. This is something that like I'll be working in for a while. And, and you know, I think that can happen, at least in my case, it happened kind of organically. Like I'm not that good at planning it. Like I don't just say, oh, and for the next five years, I'm going to work on blah. Yeah, it does seem like you've had this kind of process of, of coming to certain areas and you have a very interesting set of perspectives like i know you had a recent ish paper um called how much reading does reading comprehension require where it seems like you did something like that and i know you said like we shouldn't have been able to write that paper but because of the confused state of the field at the time you were kind of able to look at well all these people just didn't do their baselines right and then you were kind of able to to attack what was going on there (laughs) so i'm healthy about this like how much reading does reading comprehension require paper and i I think just right like um, overall i i think there's a lot of like a a couple kinds of steps that people tend to miss and part of it is people being frantic part of it is people not maybe having a disposition to pay attention to certain kinds of questions like is this actually making progress not on the benchmark as given but like the thing we actually intended to do um you know like have we like doing simple science like you know i think there's a tendency in deep learning like to really skip a lot of steps and just um and again it's not everyone there's plenty of really great papers plenty of really great empiricists out there but there's a tendency to sort of just already start piling technique on top of technique without you know and and we talk about this in the troubling trends paper about the sort of like you know, paucity of ablations and the difficulty of determining what's actually working. But like, you know, going through this process where people are getting excited about things without even having run like the sanity check sort of baselines in the first place. So in the case of that paper, it was like that level of, you know, like, I, I'm not a theorist, I don't identify, I, I do some theory work and I have some theory students, but I don't like feel myself constitutionally, I would feel like, a, you know, like a little bit of an imposter saying like I am, but I think there's a reason why I gel socially and like intellectually with theorists is that I, you know, there's a tendency to ask questions in this way of like, okay, you say this thing causes calibration. What if I have one variable and it takes one of two values and whatever, would this actually calibrate or would it decalibrate it? And then it's like, oh, actually label smoothing doesn't cause calibration. Like that's a ridiculous claim. And if you thought about it for four seconds and if you try to simplify the problem rather than complicate it, it becomes salient. So it was a similar kind of thing in, like that paper was as I was working with my student Divyanch and he's we're talking about uh, all these we were just interested in some question answering related task and uh, I think related to like um, maybe medical articles or something like that but as he starts digging into these papers um, and explaining to me what's the current thing going on with all these QA models so I was just looking at them and he said oh this model attends to this and then attends the question attends to the passage and jointly does this and this and then it combines to make an answer and I said how do we know it's doing like how do we, how do we know this is anything other than just like sort of like retrospective storytelling and he's like oh they say it in the paper you know so we kind of start wrestling with this and at some point i'm like well you know like what, what would be a simple experiment that you would run and and say surely whoever introduces data set and whoever runs these methods uh would uh just try seeing what would happen if i ran the same model but instead of actually feeding in the right question i just fed in a randomly chosen question if i got the same performance with the same model then maybe i wouldn't be so confident that the the source of the gains was that this model is intelligently, you know, hopping across the, the question and, and the answer to, to do some kind of reasoning process or something like this. So we just did those, you know, so then Divyanch goes and looks through all these papers and he's like, nobody's, nobody does these experiments. 
And, and so that was that was alarming to us. So then, you know, we got together. And this is, uh, you know, Divyansh is uh, almost almost off on his own as a, as a man of the world right now. But, uh, you know, soon we'll all be reporting to him. But, uh, yeah, in the halls of power, the, I think it's his future is in Washington. But, but we... Um, you know, we, we kind of just asked the simple questions like, okay, let's just take the existing models. We don't have to develop. That's the other thing is that so many people like think the idea of developing a paper is trying a new model, right? And we weren't we weren't proposing a new method. We weren't even proposing a new data set. We're just asking a question, which is what happens to all these methods if uh, if you either feed in, uh, remove all meaningful context from the passage, or you replace the question with a completely random question. And the answer turned out to be that a lot of these methods, you know, uh, reach similar levels of performance with like a passage only or in some cases with a question only uh setup but it would suggest that like the story about why they were working is really not supported by the experiments that they're presenting and perhaps you know what, what's really going on is not that we've like solved question answering but arguably that we're there, there's something funky about how these data sets are constructed such that they're easier prediction tasks than we realized and going deeper into it, we see things like, oh, a lot of these tasks, uh, the data sets were programmatically generated in some kind of strange way where, you know, it, it becomes possible to create what appears to be a huge data set, but where like in some important way, the data set has peculiarities that nobody notices because the people who create the data set create it programmatically. The people who then, you know, the legions of people who are then working on improving on the state of the art are often doing so without ever actually looking at the data. So you have this data set, it's out there, it's not really testing for what you think it is but you know uh we've got a, a cascade of you know ever you know so you know incrementally improving um uh leaders on the leaderboard uh but we can go through this whole process and get the whole sort of like you know grad student descent machine like revved up into high gear without ever having like certified that like we were working on the right task in the first place yeah i've to the first point about just the leaderboard chasing and not really tuning baselines correctly, I also remember seeing a paper that looked at the same thing, but in the context of neural recommender systems, where I think it was something like a worrying analysis of the past decade of recommender systems research. And they just went and looked at all of these neural baselines people were super excited about, redid some experiments, were unable to reproduce a bunch of them also took some very simple baselines, actually tuned them, were like, wait, these perform just as good as what people are reporting for neural baselines. And the conclusion was like, okay, we, we don't actually know if this field has made any progress in like the past 10 years, just because of how bad the science has been. Yeah. So these things happen. They also happen kind of episodically. Um, you know, when we wrote the Troubling Trends paper, you know, one, we, we were a little bit nervous about posting it because, you know, we were both at the very outset, Jacob and I, of our academic career. So we, we kind of circulated it to a lot of people and got a lot of insightful feedback. Um, and like my advisors, Julian and Charles and his, you know, Percy and a bunch of people, Noah Smith, Shum, um, um, and Chris Ray, like a bunch, a bunch of people came back and gave us. And, and one thing, and I think, a bunch of people said this early on, like I think Charles did, Julian did, um, Percy might have, I'm not sure, but like one, one good, you know, uh, like wheedling comment was like, okay, like, you know, a lot of these things are true, but you know, how, how unique are they to present times and like, or to machine learning as compared to other sciences. And this kind of, 
set us down a path of like in the next wave of like improving that kind of or, or contextualizing our sort of critique, looking at sort of antecedents in other fields and also in related computer science disciplines and, you know, sort of AI subfields over not just like, you know, not just having those like deep learning goggles on of like the scope of like the last six, seven years, but um, at the time, you know, this was 2018, but looking looking back towards, you know, the 1980s and 1990s. And, and it turns out there's this long history of these papers that have kind of like rattled a field or the field was sort of like already teetering, but the paper that like, um, you know, put a point on it. And there's one in like early old school AI days uh, as a Drew McDermott's uh, Artificial Intelligence Meets Natural Stupidity. And it's this paper calling out, you know, uh, both the way a lot of these systems are evaluated, but also the sort of like absurdly anthropomorphic way that they're often characterized, um, often renaming actual uh, tasks or, or, or capabilities with, uh, you know, like taking, you know, like we do in NLP so often. NLP, you think you think someone, if anyone should be concerned about the meaning of words, it should be the NLP community among, among but they're maybe among the worst, right? Because we don't say we're doing uh, slot filling or, you know, or, or tagging. We say we're doing natural language understanding. And we don't, you know, now people are better about saying question answering, you know, but at the time that we wrote Troubling Trans paper, you know, the, the dominant name for this task was reading comprehension. You know, so it's like if we ever built a system that actually comprehended text, what would we say it's doing? Because reading comprehension is already taken. And very similar arguments, you know, um, from Drew McDermott, then um, there's there's one called results that don't add up. Like now we have this problem that people are maybe so benchmark focused, they're not really thinking about uh, conceptually about what sorts of things should we be developing and what, what actually are we after and how should we go about thinking about measuring it? So you know, I feel so oriented to the, the existing benchmarks. But before that, we had a sort of opposite problem, which was people doing quantitative research, but with no common benchmarks. And so you had, you know, thousands of papers, all of which claim a 5% improvement, and yet they don't add up to a 5,000% improvement. You wound up with like a state of the art that was unclear if you were making progress at all. Um, so there's a lot of these antecedents of papers that kind of hit in the field, you know, uh, at some point, you know, diagnosing some some kind of pathology, whether of, you know, of, uh, you know, the way that research is presented and marketed or or of experimental practice or something like that. You know, we're, we're by no means the first. We were just the ones who, you know, happened to be on the scene in 2018. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I guess... Um... It's interesting to see how this manifests like in different areas of NLP. And I see you've kind of done this sort of analysis repeatedly. So you also have that paper, um, like this pre, what was it? This pre-training for summarization requiring knowledge transfer. I thought that was, yeah, interesting in that the you were basically taking these, these pre-training objectives that were ostensibly helpful for summarization, but then you applied them to text that was literally just nonsense words and you found also significant benefits. Right. And, and actually, you know, we have a, a new paper that I'm kind of excited about that I can tell you that that uh, should be on the archive tonight. Um, right. I mean, what's going on there is, yeah, this thing that like clearly there is a set of procedures that works, right, which is or, or is, is, is delivering like this is advancing practice, which is this process of um, using transformer models, pre-training them in, you know, one of several fashions that seem to be effective depending different methods, depending on whether you're doing a summarization task or you're doing a 
you know, classification task or whatever. So for summarization, people tend to use these like uh, things where these pre-training objects where everything is represented as a sequence, like T5 type setup, whereas for, um, for uh, you know, maybe classification, people might use a BERT model, Zion Trainer, the mass language modeling objective. And they're doing this, and they're they're doing this with these larger and larger transformer models and larger and larger corpora and seeing, oh, we're getting these gains. But there's a question, which is, wait a minute, um, let's just keep track of like, um, I mean, if all you care about is the gains, then maybe you think like, this is okay. Like, you know, maybe people don't know what's going on, but as long as as long as this dance is is producing results, it's good. But but if I, you're thinking like a scientist, you think, um, why are we getting these gains? And among other things, like which which parts here are are, are sort of integral and which are not, right? So, uh, right, there's a question of is it that this is a useful routine that that transformers are just somehow unstable or ill-conditioned there's something about the pre-training process that gives you sort of uh an initialization such that like fine-tuning from there is smooth sailing it, it somehow like conditions them in a way such that training is subsequently stable or is it that like there's really this important like transfer learning going on where you're learning linguistic structure and blah 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 and the problem is that a lot of the papers just say this thing the, all they have to stand on is we did this thing and it worked but then they make up a story and they say something about how it's learning linguistic structure and this is what is resulting in the benefit. And so, right, like thinking more like a scientist and less like someone who's trying to advance the leaderboard, we, we kind of run these experiments like, think, is it possible to have a, an upstream corpus that truly has like undeniably no linguistic structure? And people have done these other things. Like they had shown that you got some benefits from pre-training on like piano roll or like music or something like that. And, and, but like the takeaway being short of what it should have been, right, right? Which is the takeaway being, oh, there's shared structure between uh, music and uh, language or between genomic sequences and language. Whereas what we're kind of arguing is like, is this about shared structure at all really? Or is this more like a, a more kind of generic benefit that's better thought of in terms of optimization than in terms of knowledge transfer? So right, we we found we came up with a way of setting up uh, 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 a pre-training task. And in this case, the task was something like uh, you know you have a just random words, not even real words, they're just like random phonemes that are stitched together. And there's one special token, and there's periods placed every so far. And like you know, you'd have a task like something like um, you know out just copy out. Uh, you know, generate as output all the sentences that contain the special token or one of the special tokens, if it's a set, something like that. Um, and it turns out that if you do that in a, a corpus, all it is is just random gibberish with periods and a couple special tokens sprinkled around. But pre-training on this task actually results in models that realize a substantial fraction of the benefits. So if you say, like, what's the difference between the performance of a randomly initialized model and one pre-trained on, like, a massive upstream corpus? that we realize like a substantial fraction of that benefit. Not always all of it, depends on the model, depends on downstream tasks, depends on, but we, we get out a huge chunk, maybe often like the majority of the benefit without having used any upstream data. So, so it, it asks this question of what's going on here? Is it something about the, the process of pre-training or is it something about the data? So we have a new paper now, which is looking at things like uh, Roberta and Electra and Bert. And there, you know, these models are often... Um, uh, the story says something about how the way they work is, you know, people say that somehow it has something to do with knowledge transfer. And uh, but the the proof, the 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 thing people have to stand on is that these models give benefits as evaluated by subsequent performance when they're fine tuned to perform certain downstream tasks. 
And one example is like, for example, the glue benchmark task, right? And so we took a whole bunch of downstream data sets, like sort of smaller classification data sets, including the glue benchmark, but also some other data sets. And what we did was, and this is with my student Kundan Krishna, um, and also my student Saab Garg. Um, uh, is, uh, so, so, so what Kundan uh, started was sort of saying, and he's the same student as the, the summarization pre-training paper, was to say, could I get the same, or, or, or how, what fraction of the benefit, similar kind of question, what fraction of the benefit could I have realized if I just didn't use any upstream corpus? Like I just took the same data, the same data for which we have labels that are available for downstream fine-tuning, and we just pre-train on that. So we call it self-pre-training. Um, and so the, the title of the paper in Chicago Archive tonight is something like uh, Downstream Datasets Make Surprisingly Good um, Pre-Training uh, Corpora. But you take each of these tasks and you just basically do the train an Electro model or train a Roberta model, but using only the amount of data, only precisely that data that is already available. So in some sense, there's no transfer in that. We're not, we're not using the unsupervised learning to somehow incorporate additional data for which we don't have labels. There's no semi-supervised aspect here. In, in the sense that we're not taking advantage of unlabeled data, we're using only that same data that the classifier already had access to. And the strange thing is that across like many, many, many experiments, it seems like you know, and again, this is not to say this is true of all contexts of all foundation models of all pre-training, but specifically these like contextual embedding models as subsequently fine-tuned for classification tasks. We find that often we can get, in general, we get comparable benefit to just pre-training on the downstream uh, data itself rather than pre-training on, you know, web crawl or wiki text or something like that. That's really fascinating. I guess first to what you're saying about how people will do these pre-training tasks, they see the downstream performance, and then invent this story that your research is pointing doesn't seem to quite hold up about how they're encoding linguistic structure. But I guess one thing that brings to mind that I'd be really curious to see is um, Chris Manning's lab also had a relatively recent paper where they were looking at MBERT and found that it actually did according to their probing methodology, seem to encode these universal linguistic dependencies. Um, so it was able to do things like distinguish post-nominal from pre-nominal adjectives. And there was some really neat stuff there just in terms like of- one like of Kevin Clark's papers or something? I think it might've been, yeah. Or but they were looking at- more recent, know, like in that yeah. line of- Yeah, yeah, something like that. But I would be really curious to see what those probes um, end up sort of finding if they were to dig into models that were pre-trained on like nonsense text or, or what you were doing yeah. instead of models that were trained on like real uh, corpora. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I want to be careful not to paint with like too broad a brush, but um, and I think I think a lot of those studies are really interesting. You know, I, I respect a lot of the folks in, in Chris's lab and folks like, you know, Yoav that have done some, um, some probing studies. Um, I, I guess what I would say, though, is first that what's missing from that story is like, you know, the the what shows up and, you know, not every paper is like equally loosey goosey with uh, the narrative. But what shows up, a, you know, a pretty widespread in how people talk about these things is a sort of causal claim, you know, a mechanistic claim that like this is why these things work. This is why they get benefits on the downstream task. 
And, and But there's no account for that mechanism. When you do a probing study, you're not saying, why is it that when starting from this initialization, I subsequently get to whatever. Insofar as, then, then there's this problem of what do we mean by a probe? And, and I think, you know, their things are very confused. There's a lot of these papers, they, you know, um, they're, they're, there's something sort of gestural about studies. It's not quite, you know, like, look, uh, it might be possible to reconstruct the entire input sequence from the representation and insofar as that these models are these representations are invertible then it's like well they contain all the information in the input and you could predict anything from it anything that could be predicted from the input could be predicted from the representation so long as they're invertible so the fact that it contains the information sort of tells you nothing because like of course it does because they're just rich representations and like there was only one sentence that would give rise to that exact representation so then the question is like, well, they're showing something a little bit stronger than that. They're not just showing that it contains the information. They're showing that it's somehow like easy-ish to get out. You know, they show that like, oh, there happens to be one attention head that like is very correlated with something. Or they show that a linear model trained atop a certain representation could predict something much better than it maybe could if you tried to train the linear model directly at top the input. And, and on one hand, that's like, it is interesting. It's interesting. I, I, I think it's, I, I think like what, I think what the, the most honest thing to be said about it is it's like at once sort of interesting and does warrant some further consideration. Probably I would say like overall, like there's more attention than there should be on this kind of study. So, you know, that's always a judgment you make as a researcher for like, should I pile in or not? It's like, is this oversaturated or undersaturated? I think there's maybe too much probing going on. It's like, you know, X Files level, but but you know, then the question though is like, what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? Like, why? Why? Given that, like, of course, there is inf- mutual information. You know, a lot, a lot of these papers also like invoke information theoretic concepts in a in a way that's sort of very loose and not quite faithful to what these words mean, and, and it makes me a bit uncomfortable. Like, of course, there's mutual information. Um, but they're, what they're really after, it's not about mutual information. It's more like, is it like in some sense easy to predict? It's encoded in a very like obvious way or something like that. But what's missing, right, is like, what, what is the right way to look at it? What is the right notion of obvious? And, and, and what does that actually imply for anything else? And I think the danger of a lot of the probing work is that it leads people to think that like, oh, this is why it works. As opposed to like, oh, here's a curious property of these representations that may or may not have anything to do with why it's useful as, a, as an initialization to like a model that is subsequently fine-tuned. And I think we just don't understand this process. Like, you know, we don't understand what is it about an initialization that results in, you know, like, what are the, 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 what are the right like, aspects, right attributes of an initialization that, that, that tell us anything? Or what is, and what is the process by which these such an attribute would sort of translate into the efficacy of a downstream model on a different task. We, you know, this, this is all very much like, um, you know, I don't know, like the way I like to talk about this sometimes these days, like my current framing, I don't know if you ever read the Strugatsky brothers. They were like uh, a science fiction writing team in, in Russia. Um, but it's like antecedents for a lot of modern things like, uh, this sort of like realistic first encounter procedural, you know, thing where you, you encounter the aliens, but you don't quite meet them and they're not quite alive in the way we are. And maybe you're not actually interacting with them. You're interacting with their technology. Like they came, I think, even before like Arthur Clarke's like rendezvous with Rama. Anyway, 
you know, like they, they have this book called uh, Roadside Picnic, and it's like the aliens come and they drop off a bunch of space junk. And they, they, it's, it's almost like District 9, like the, 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 the smart aliens, the ones that like piloted the ships or whatever, like they're all, in fact, in, in, in Roadside Picnic, you don't, you don't meet the aliens at all. Like, you know, the ships came, they were there for 30 seconds, they dropped off their garbage and they took off. And so what's left is like the book picks up like then, and like, uh, I think this is the basis of the Tarkovsky movie Stalker, which I still haven't gotten to see, but it's it's like the premise is like you're interacting now. You're, what you're left with is like the the movie picks up and you're seeing a society where there's whole communities that are you know evolve around this alien technology, but no one understands how any of it works, you know. And so there are certain people who have a knack for getting in and out of the uh, like the 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 quarantine zones without you know without being detected, without being killed, whatever. But there's a bunch of toxic stuff there. It kills most of the people that go in. There's a bunch of crazy technology. Some of it kills you. Some of it has some amazingly useful properties. Like it turns out to be like, you know, like a, a never dying battery or something like that. Something that we have no idea how it could possibly work. Um, but the way people are interacting with it, you know, it's not like the way that we interact with uh, a system where we have some foundational principles. It's like, you know, you go in and, well, somebody tried touching it and it blew up. So we don't, we don't do it the way they did it. We tried a different way. And then someone survived, you know, someone... You know, there's a knob. What happens if you turn it? Ooh, like, you know. <laughs> and, and I think that to some extent, that's how we're interacting with Bert and friends um, in general, like large language models. I think, you know, you read these papers, even by people who I think are at the very front of the field, you know, folks at OpenAI, folks at Anthropic who are certainly the, the best and most skilled at training these things and, and getting them up on big systems. And even of having the intuition to figure out how to get something useful out of them. And, and that's a huge thing. Like that's, you know, I, I don't say this to, to in any way like denigrate that. Like I think that that is a, um, an incredible achievement and it's, you know, it's, it's no mean feat to, to, to scale this stuff up and, and to, to, to put together the, the resources and the engineering talent to make that work and to have the, the creativity to like the, 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 you know, it's not a coincidence that they come up with the right intuitions very often, you know, that's not an accident. And, you know, there, there is something there. Um, and at the same time, the way they're interacting with this technology feels often less like how we interact with like a mature technology and more like how we might poke around with an alien technology. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Another, another science fiction story that reminds me of is um, Story of Your Life, the Ted Chiang one, where um, I guess it's, it's a little bit different, but, you know, the idea of they're trying to communicate with aliens and understand what in the world that is they're saying and right, sort yeah. of approaching it with this very slow process. Septipods. Yes. That, that does make me curious though, just what your take is on better ways of teasing out causal structure or making causal claims within a field like NLP. And I know you've done some work along these lines. So with learning the difference that makes a difference and the sort of counterfactually augmented data line of work. Yeah. Um, it's hard to like figure out like how to summarize like what, what is the, what is the move? But I guess it's just, you know, it's not like I have like a, a catch all recipe. It's like, here's the steps. If you do steps one, two, three, then you'll make sense of everything or whatever. Like I don't, I, I wouldn't like have the, I wouldn't have like the hubris to like pretend that like I've got that kind of recipe, but you know, maybe, maybe after tenure, then I'll, then I'll, um, no, like I, I think that 
a lot of these studies go on where it's not really clear what the question is. And I think it's a lot of work just to stand your ground and just to be like, I'm going to poke it. Like, we're going to argue about this. We're going to wrestle. We're going to do experiments. But like, we're, we're really going to insist on, 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 on figuring out what the question is, you know? And, and, and in that sense, you know, that's, I guess, you know, I don't know. That's one framing of like, that's, that's who is it? like Daniel Dennett likes us to articulate that. Maybe to some degree is like um, the difference between like, you know, maybe, philosophy and science or philosophy and engineering or something. And, and I think it's like, I think the wrong way to take that is like the difference between uh, who gets to call themselves a philosopher and who gets to call themselves an engineer or a scientist. I don't think that the difference is like people or like individuals or like everyone is on one side all the time. But I think it's like a, a nice way of maybe organizing like the spectrum of activities, like the philosophical side of a field is the, sorting out like what are the questions like what are coherent questions what are important questions um and um and and the on the opposite end of the spectrum is sort of a place where you take all of your conceptual commitments for granted right you sort of say someone else has decided what's um what's what the right concepts are someone else has decided what the right you know sort of data to look at is and why someone else has decided like what is important someone else has like brought the normative commitments to the table and uh, then you know then you could just think of yourself in this almost like pure engineering or building kind of mindset where you're you're completely disengaged with like the the philosophical content of your field and i think for us it's sort of like you know it, it really it bothers us when we don't know what, like, you know, when it feels like we're sort of hovering around something, right. But like, we really, we know we're saying something wrong or we know we're like using the wrong set of categories to describe. So like in, in the case of the counterfactual augmented data paper, you know, we're, we're engaging with a literature where people are, are constantly talking about spurious associations and spurious correlations. And like I said, the model's biased. Uh, the data is biased. Like, what do you mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, we re- like what, what, what makes a correlation spurious? Like, what does someone mean? Well, like statisticians, when they say the word spurious, mean, um, well, I shouldn't speak for all statisticians, but like one, one meaning of spurious would be that like you would, you would perform a study that is sort of like underpowered in such a way that like you, 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 you come out with what, what appears to be, uh, a large effect or something like this, but it's actually just an artifact of small sample size, something that would have eroded or disappeared if only you had collected more data. So that's one notion of a spurious finding. I don't think that's what we're talking about here, right? Then there is a different notion of spuriousness that is the 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 what is sort of, I think, the primarily meant by someone like Yuta Pearl or Elias Berenboim or someone uh, in the sort of like core, you know, certainly the the terminology adopted in like, you know, AI side of uh, causality research. And I think, you know, even even in the, that side, if you talk about, um, you know, maybe they, I don't know if they use the word spurious as much or they would just say like confounding or confoundedness, but it's sort of the the appearance of an a, a, an association that arises not because of like a causal link from x to y or y to x, but rather because of a common cause. Um, and so, you know, 
we look at a lot of these problems in NLP and say, like, why, like, what does it mean when someone says, like, these are bad correlations? There's no such thing as a bad correlation or a good correlation or, like, that, that, that sort of seems silly. But it's like, what, what are people talking about? And, and it seems like in a lot of cases, what, what we're saying is, hey, this is not the factor that uh, causes the label to apply. Like, like, this factor is predictive of the label, but you could just as easily like we know something about how the world we know something about what language means such that we know that we could change something in a certain way and it actually doesn't change the applicability of a label like to say that this is a horror movie versus a a romantic comedy does not change the applicability of the um the determination that this was a positive review versus a negative review and and it's very easy to imagine the counterfactual world that you could live in where horror movies were all very highly rated and uh, romantic comedies were lowly rated. Maybe that's what's happening right now. You know, um, Jordan Peele's having a moment and uh, like high horror is, is, is in. So, um, yeah, you know, like I think that's our, like that's one move is just to sort of say like, do we know what we mean when we're talking? Like when we use, like um, I taught a class on like the, the art of the paper uh, last semester and one message I try to drill home and I try to, every time I'm working on a paper with a student, you know, we, we go through papers like frighteningly slowly, like one sentence, one word at a time. And the, the, like, the maxim to live by is sort of like every word is true. You know, if I take every sentence, now, now you might not agree with me that I am working on a promising strategy for dealing with home. You might not, not agree with my choice of what problem to work on in the first place, that it's important and that's a normative determination. But... The paper itself, like you have enough room by virtue of, you know, what you are, what facts you present and in what order and whatever that, like you have enough normative force from that, that like, you know, in terms of like when you make, and I think it's even okay to express an opinion sometimes in a paper, but the, the, the commitment then is to say, you know, or, or speculation, you know, we talk about this in the Troubling Translate, we say it's okay to speculate, it's okay to share an intuition, um, but um, the, the true statement would be, when developing this method, we were guided by the following intuition, colon. And you can say whatever you want, you know. Um, you know, we thought about the story of, you know, when, when, when you know, Jesus rose from Lazarus's tomb or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. Remember. I don't, I don't even remember the, I don't know. Is that where he came from? Someone came from there. Maybe it was Lazarus. There was, it was like the raising of Lazarus, something like uh, that. Someone, someone came from somewhere. Anyway, but you know what I'm saying? The, the point is that like, you could draw intuition from, from whatever side. We think about when a bird drops from the sky and how it comes back up. And this makes us think about how the weights of the, it's like, that's okay. At least this, this statement, the technical statement is we were guided by the following story. Like, or like we drew inspiration from the following story. Now, whether or not someone agrees that that is like a, uh, uh, in general, like uh, uh, a promising place to like hunt for intuitions, that's up to them. But at least you didn't lie to them. And and so I think we always try to like think like when we make a statement, like do like is it clear what the sentence means? And uh, like do we know like do we do we really understand what we mean? And are are we are we confident that it's true? Can we really stand behind it? And sometimes this means like this in- involves like what seems like a really anal amount of like agonizing over precise qualifiers you know like we say something it's very important when you talk about an underspecified problem that you are very clear when you say something typically seems to work or often works well if you know it's an underspecified problem it's like well whether it works often or fails often 
is now going to be contingent upon like the the sort of choice of measure like what is the probability distribution of like scenarios that you're looking at and because you know you can always construct a, a collection of benchmarks where the something will always fail because it's the problem's underspecified you know um so it's really important for us like we're working on a paper like that now that we're, we're reintroducing a, a major benchmark but for a problem that is generally underspecified to say you know across like on our you know as evaluated on, on our on, you know on, on on the data sets and distribution shifts drawn from our benchmark we find that x method typically outperforms whatever method and it's really important that we say that that we don't just say oh like this method this method's so you know is better at distribution shifts because that doesn't mean anything um like it wouldn't be true um like the plain interpretation of the sentence would be would be a lie and and it's really hard and i'm not saying that like we're saying so that we always get it right but this is like this is the like the north star you know what i mean this is this is when we when we go through and we're editing this is what we're this is what we're hoping to hit and 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 if we this is the question we ask ourselves yeah it's 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 certainly the case i guess that a lot of claims that just aren't given the appropriate qualifiers then as you said end up confusing people they get taken as true i remember something like this that i think you referenced as well came up in the context of like intuitions behind batch norm or something and then people making the claim this is robust to distribution shift without any right. classifier because batch norm works by correcting for internal covariate shift what does that mean nobody knows uh, domain adversarial networks uh you know solve distribution no no they don't you know uh um Right, like uh, the distribution shift literature is full of these things with methods that obviously don't work in general because they're they're settings where it's obvious it's, it's obvious in the first place that no method works in general. Like like the the problem is underposed, underspecified in a way that is so profound that it's like even under the most ideal conditions, like even if you just say like either label shift or covariate shift is going on, that uh, basically you have no ability based on the observed data to determine conclusively whether you're in the label shift or covariate shift setting and any method that in general works for one will fail for the other. So it's like, you know, it's like, that's the setting we're in, but people put method to say, this thing adapts. It estimates this, you know, without saying like, you know, I even say it doesn't require assumptions. And they're like, well, of course it does. You're just not stating them. You don't, you don't even know what they are, but it doesn't work absent assumptions. It, it works on the handful of benchmarks that you evaluated on. And, and one of the problems, and we're, we're doing a lot of work on this right now is that, this whole empirical line of benchmark-driven uh, domain adaptation methods has produced many, many methods that fail in, in fail to the extent that they consistently, even on those very same data sets for which they were like developed, um, fail to the point of doing worse than just like a like a naively trained source data-only classifier. Under just if you just add in large shifts in uh, the label marginal. So it's like if there's severe shift in the label distribution, sh severe shift in class balance, but otherwise you have the same distribution shifts, you just, you know, it just turns out that a lot of the benchmark data sets, you have uniform label distributions, both in source and target. But like this alone is enough to make many of these methods or the vast majority of these methods perform on those very same benchmarks far worse than the corresponding source only classifier. So this is new work with um, my student, Sarab Garg. Um, um, so yeah, it's uh, um, label smoothing uh, causes calibration. It's like, all I need is, what if I have a problem? X is binary feature. 
whenever you know whenever x is one y is one whenever x is zero y is zero now what if i do label smoothing now the class is going to be right 100 percent of time and i put label smoothing with epsilon 0.1 or something so now i'm going to do label smoothing and the classifier is going to always say it's 90 percent confident but it'll be 100 percent accurate if only i just like shut up and did nothing it would have been calibrated right like, you know, whatever, just do a logistic regression. I would have assigned, you know, as you trained it with, you know, separate, you know, separable data would have like the weight norms would have blown up to infinity, but eventually you'd get arbitrarily close to assigning 100% probability to all your predictions and you'd be correct. Um, but if you do label smoothing, everything fails. So, so there's this, right, there's this weird, yeah, and, and you know, I don't know. It, it's, it's not to say it's all bad, you know, it's just... Uh, this, this is, I think, one nice thing about, like, we talked before about floating between communities and about, like, you know, how is it, like, you know, I'm in a space where, like, working here and working here. And I think this is one thing that I'm very grateful for is to just be in an environment. I think a lot of that is the interdisciplinary nature of CMU. And part of that is just, like, the good fortune to have this weird group of collaborators in different areas that are, that are willing to work with me. But the fact that, like, I get to work on the side when I have, like, statistical kind of problems that go into statistical theory with um, people like Sivo Balakrishna and, and um, is in the stats department at CMU and is just absolutely brilliant and patient and um, methodical and clear. And in theoretical computer science, people like Andre Rosteski, people like um, Ishai Mansour, like kind of learning theorists, um, uh, um, econometricians like David Childers over in the econ department here. And I also get to work, you know, collaborate with people, you know, RT Singh, also in, like a statistician, Ravi Kumar, like it's an incredible group of people around here in ML department of stats, but then also in, work in NLP um, and collaborate with folks over there like Graham and, um, um, and, and work in healthcare data and actually, you know, collaborate with people at like UPMC and the startup, the bridge that I work with and work in industry and collaborate with people at Amazon. And to like be able to bring something from one side to another. And, you know, like if I were to walk over to like Larry Wasserman and tell him like, there's like, oh, there's a label smooth. Like this is what label smoothing is. Does it cause calibration? It would take him 15 seconds to see it. It's like, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not like, you know, like this isn't like a profound insight to have. But on the other hand, if you go to a lit, if you go into the literature where like, that's the the game people are playing and, and you know a lot of this like knowledge distillation literature whatever a lot of that the front lines people they don't have you know a lot of a lot of folks don't have that um that kind of you know that's not their toolkit and so you know i think like the advice and, and by, by the conversely the deep learning communities do does all kinds of things that like i think a lot of other disciplines never would have done you know, like, I don't, I don't think that, like, the stats community left alone was going to go out and build, like, modern machine translation systems. I, I, I don't think they would have the, the whatever, the, the exploratory spirit or, like, the, the amount of, like, faith to just sort of, like, follow through or, or the, the penchant for engineering to be like, oh, like, that's what it takes. That's the main thing is getting us stuff working on GPU. Like, that's what we're doing now. So I think the you know, there's also other things like you go to the main stats conferences and, and I love a lot of people on stats, but the, the conference, you know, you go to JSM, there's not like a feeling at JSM, like the world is changing today. And like, what is the new thing? Like, they're, like it's commitment, like there is a new thing. We need to find out what it is. And we're really amped about it. And, and, and on the deep learning side, yes, it's a little bit embarrassing when the community kind of misfires or it 
gloms around something like these explainability methods is like total obvious snake oil. But at the same time, a lot of times it like, you know, when there really is like a thing that shows up, it's a new capability. You know what I mean? It's like there are people who are out there who like believe that like the field's about to change and they're hunting for the thing. And when when it kind of reveals itself a little bit, like are piling into it. And so, like, the, you know, there, there's a lot of things that are beautiful about being in a field that's kind of more mature and where people write papers that feel a little bit more like, I don't know, like have, have a more of a, a feeling of mastery to it. But there's also something about being in a field that has a dynamism that like whole, you know, thousands and thousands of people can just uproot and suddenly are doing something different. And, and that like the, the overall like dynamics of the field can move so fast. And also that has the engagement with business processes and real data and, and, and engagement with computing resources that, you know, leads to all kinds of exciting places. So I think it's just this, you know, the, the advice I give students often is like, you know, I think the default thing to do is sort of like find your community and just like work in it. And I kind of think it's a little bit different. Like, I think it's more like what the ideal is like, use the university for all of its diversity and kind of look around and say like whatever it is like for each of the components of like your of your agenda think like how important is this to me and like who does it best and it's very often it's not going to you know so it's like you think what do i think is the important problem right now maybe i think it's large language models you say okay i'm probably going to be publishing a lot of my papers in nlp journals like who do i think writes papers in the most disciplined way you know who do i think really has mastered the technical style and maybe it's not them maybe it's maybe you think it's the statisticians maybe you think it's uh, the tcs folks maybe you think it's the information theorists you know it's you know you know uh who do you want to learn you know how to write proofs from right who do you want to like acquire like notation style from um who do you want to learn from for what constitutes a convincing experiment right um, who do you want to learn from for what constitutes like a convincing and um, insightful like limitation section, right? And these are all going to be different. Um, and I think that like, I don't know, it's kind of like as a musician where you're like, if you're like a bassist and you want to learn how to play jazz and you want to learn how to like have a big old like sound and quarter note that like jumps off the bass, you should listen to the like the great jazz masters. You want to have great intonation, maybe it's a good idea to, to, to spend some time with some classical teachers and really learn about like exercises for developing like, you know, intonation and fingering technique up the, up the, up the fingerboard, you know? And so I, I think that as a researcher, um, you have the opportunity, there's no reason not to like, um, you know, mix and max, like, you know, sort of cherry pick like your inspirations from a, a wider pool. They don't all have to be people who publish in the same conferences as you. Yeah. That's that's a really interesting insight, and I guess as has manifested in your own career, I think that does lead to this really interesting way in which you can take tools from one area and apply to another in ways that people might not have thought about. I feel like your um, this paper you had on does mitigating ML's impact disparity require treatment disparity, where you did this like theoretical analysis on um, disparate learning processes, and then kind kind of came out of it with some really interesting conclusions was kind of a good case of where you had these these tools from theory, but then were able to go over and apply it to this set of algorithms that might have very real implications um, just in terms of policy and things like that. 
Yeah, and you know, I think overall the theory in that paper is very, very, very simple. You know, like I think it's we're still like in, you know, back of a napkin kind of theory. Like, sure, sure, but right, I think I think that sort of um, like the reason why it mattered was how the message squared up. It's like, oh, these people are claiming to address fairness as operationalized in sort of U.S. anti-discrimination law, right? Like the, um, you know, as encoded in two legal doctrines from the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But these, these are, you know, plain text. Like these are, these are these complex legal doctrines that have many different components to them and, um, and not like so facile, like just kind of like rounded off like interpretation. But what then they do is they say, oh, Here's, here's two mathematical expressions. We're going to call this one disparate impact, this one disparate treatment. And then we're going to write a bunch of papers. And what happens is like they, they, someone does this in a paper, and then a bunch of other people just say, oh, the law says you need to satisfy disparate treatment you know, and not have disparate impact. This is what disparate treatment is. This is what disparate impact is. And they quote these equations, these expressions. And, and so like the... This is like, I think to me, like, this is not so, so much like an area of like using theory art, but, but be right, maybe more of an area of this like drawing, right? Like the theory itself is very simple, but it's more like recognizing what is it that the law actually says. We actually went and, you know, read the law and also read the corresponding legal scholarship where, you know, we knew something um, about where the actual meaning of the law and what's captured by like just training ML models to satisfy these two conditions don't quite square up. And then you can look and then analyze what happens if you do one of these algorithms. And then people say, oh, we need to satisfy these two things. So we propose some algorithms that uh, simultaneously satisfy these two things. And so the, the key is just to sort of analyze what happens when you do that and to kind of circle back and show how this can result in these outcomes that really don't, you know, cut against what the, the law actually means and suggests, you know. Um, so so it, it's, again, I think it's about that binding, like what, you know, it's not like it's a, we're, we're bringing to the, the debate the most profound knowledge of legal scholarship or the most profound theory or the most, you know, um, you know, a, a kind of like results table, like, uh, you know, uh blast or like a new method design, but but it's it, it's that it's understanding the way these things relate to each other you know and, and being able to like kind of sit right in that binding and understand and articulate you know like the hardest part of that paper by far for us was the storytelling right which is how do you explain to someone because the, the takeaway to understand the takeaway what you have to understand is that what the analysis of these things reveals is the ways in which this sort of literature has become disengaged from the, the law that it's ostensibly trying to operationalize. Um, and you have to somehow convince a, um, this audience where like the audience is, you know, not simultaneously legal scholars and quantitative researchers and, you know, um, statisticians or learning theorists. So you have to kind of, be able to put this in a way that makes this audience where any one reviewer or any one reader doesn't necessarily bring the full toolkit to the show to, to make them understand this kind of um, broader story that um, invokes these other disciplines. Sure. It's, it's definitely an interesting balance where you're, you're cross-cutting across these different domains and different 
aspects are certainly going to concern different people and you kind of have to figure out how to how to balance things there you've i guess thought about these problems more broadly too in terms of um your sort of work on like algorithmic fairness from a non-ideal perspective and like you're talking about the folly of ml solutionism which i think is a really interesting line of work and some other people I've spoken to also comment on this. So I know Ben Green, for example, is one person who's very forward on the idea that there is this rampant techno-solutionism, the idea that we can put everything into an algorithmic formalism, but then when we try to attack the problems, you inherit some some benefits, but also all of the limitations of what algorithmic formalism can and cannot capture when it's applied to things like fairness and policy and all of that. Yeah, I think... Part of the problem there, it's, it relates to questions of identification. And um, it's, not really, like, it's not just a question of what can an algorithm capture, but a question of like this epistemic question. What is it that I need to know to make certain kinds of determinations? And like, imagine, imagine we're talking to a physicist, right? And I just imagine we just give him a hard drive. I say, tell me like the tell me the laws of physics. You know, here's some data. They wouldn't just say, okay, I'll apply the the physics algorithm. It's like the first question is like, what what the hell are you handing me? Like, what what do you mean this data? How I'm supposed to tell you like the law of like I don't I don't even know what what you thought you were measuring or how you measured it. Like, how am I supposed to make a conclusion about physics? When, when I don't even know if I'm just like, I've, I have no idea what you handed me. I don't know what any of it represents. Um, and so like, that's not how science works, right? Science doesn't work by people just saying, just give me a hard drive and then I'll, I'll tell you what is, well, you know, I'll tell you the laws of electromagnetism or something. Um, there, there's, there's always a question of like, okay, I have some set of commitments about like what the world consists of roughly. And, um, What's out there, and then, and then you know, I now, in order to you know develop this knowledge further, whatever, like I might say, okay, I want to test the implications of the theory. I need to go out, and, you know, if the theory is right, then you know it should be that when I do this, that happens. Or I have to, I have to go into certain settings, or I have to run certain experiments and collect data. And how the data was collected and what it represented and what it had to do with anything matters. Um, and so you're used to this question, like you don't just assume that, like if I just give you data, like the question, whatever the question is, it's answerable based on the data that I just happened to give you. And and this isn't just true of like, you know, discerning the laws of physics or something like, you know, it could just be, you know, like doing social science, doing, um, you know, trying to identify a causal effect, you know, doing public health. It's like, you, I could just hand you some data and just use, you know, whatever I handed you, um, You'll just tell me, like, you know, what is the, you know, whatever it is. What is the, um, you know, the, like, uh, contagion factor for, like, COVID in a particular time, in a particular place, at a particular date or something. Um, you have to ask this question of, like, do I have an identification strategy? Like, do I have, is it, is the thing, is the question you're asking me answerable based on the data you're giving me? Or what do I have to go out and get? And I think, you know, the problem with the ML fairness work is it's not so much that it's, like, just that it's saying that like algorithms can do things. The problem is that it's like, it's, it's sort of like very often um, just taking for granted a framing that just says, I have a data set. There are some variables. There's a trait. There's a prediction. Go tell me what's fair. It, 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 it is unconcerned most of the time with 
what what are the variables? What are you measuring? What, if anything, is known about the processes by which they might have come to be differently distributed among different groups of people? What sort of real processes of um, you know human activity are sort of resulting in these data sets? Is it possible that these are you know, uh, we're observing data that are themselves like the trace of, you know, discriminatory policies. Um, moreover, what is the decision that we're making? You know, what is it this and, and, and do we know anything about the process by which making this decision differently would potentially hurt harm versus benefit people? And that the idea that you could just sort of say in a sort of generally agnostic way, like I've got two demographics, I've got some features, um, Tell me what's fair. It's like fair, fair what? Um, so you know, um, you know, our take. You know, what ends up happening is that people, you know, they try to cast a problem in such a generic way, where it's just as though like it doesn't matter what data you're looking at. It doesn't know what matter what variables you forgot to measure. It doesn't matter what information you didn't put about the problem. It, it, it somehow. Like there will be a like to say that there's a purely algorithmic fix. It's not just to say that there's a purely that the that the that the answer could be expressed uh, cogently like via like a formal algorithm. There's something deeper. Like it's like the, the uh, to me the issue is not saying that the you know we can do this formally. Like the 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 bigger the the bigger issue is that it's saying we could do this formally like based on this impoverished characterization of the problem. And so what ends up happening is like, well, you know, it turns out that like, okay, if you take this completely impoverished characterization of the problem, so you tell me nothing about what's going on, nothing about what decisions being made, nothing about even whether or not a matter of justice is actually at stake, you know, am I talking about uh, trading Pokemon cards? Or am I talking about uh, making carceral decisions? Or am I talking about prioritizing people for organ transplants? Or am I talking about allocating opportunities? Or am I talking about, you know, um, assigning patients to doctors, if I say nothing about what's going on and nothing about where the data is collected, and then I proceed to enumerate every single kind of parody that like could possibly hold, every expression such that like I might think intuitively it might be nice if this were equalized, you know, uh, this took the same value for people from group one and for people from group two, then you quickly realize that like, oh, well, if the data is just arbitrarily differently distributed in the first place, I can't simultaneously satisfy every single parody. Like, that's just, you know, and, you know, so you have this whole literature on impossibility theorems. And the naive take on impossibility theorems is to say, like, oh, fairness is impossible. Or, like, um, the, the, I think, real take is to say, look, this is what it is to talk about justice. It's to say, it's not to just enumerate, you know, uh, everything that could possibly be equal and then just be like, uh, uh, take, you know, uh, let's just pick one of them arbitrarily and focus on algorithms for optimizing it, is that actually this this is what it is to be engaged in the, the, the normative game, is to be um, trying to come up with some coherent way for making determinations about what is the thing that a particular decision maker should be optimizing for in a particular situation. And what is the, the basis on which such a determination needs to be made? Yeah, it's it's interesting, I guess. So the first time I ever heard about algorithmic fairness, I think I was just introduced in, to the idea that, well, you can you can kind of use these linear algebraic tool, tools to kind of determine 
like you've got this this as you said intuitive notion of fairness between one group and another group and i thought oh that's cool but definitely looking at things since then and and the more i've learned i mean when you when you place problems in that framing as you said you're almost totally ignoring like the real world out there what's actually happening what are the political social structures in play that all have bearing on this and that's incredibly important to not just how you evaluate what it means to be fair, but then if you're going to start thinking about resolutions, what those have to look like. Um, my last question here, towards the beginning of our conversation, we spoke about your transition from music to doing research and really wanting to belong to this more intellectual culture. I, I guess the last thing I want to know is just as a researcher, as an ML practitioner, what motivates you now? It's more complicated now. Um, I mean, it's more complicated because, well, there's a few things going on, you know, and, and part of it is like, what, what am I excited about in research? And there I've got problems that, you know, you know, uh, we got a lot going on and that's obviously like shifting landscape, but certainly we've got some, some tracks that we're really deep in and excited about. Like, for example, all this work on sort of really trying to put together these, these frameworks for asking when, when is generalization of a, of a like higher order than sort of just two unseen data from the same distribution possible under what sorts of structures is it possible so that, that organized a lot of our research. On the other side, there's an impact side, like understanding what what are the right ways to operationalize certain social desiderata such that systems could be, um, you know, um, deployed in, 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 I guess, you know, as I guess a normative point, but like what we think is a, is a societally beneficial way. And there's an impact side in healthcare domain. Um you know, how, how can we actually use this technology to make better decisions and not just like show people dashboards? Um, so these are like technical problems that I'm excited about. Um, and there's plenty of, you know, more terrain that like, you know, is always opening It's the more time you get to read. And um, then there's other side, there's other things that are gratifying about a life and research once you have a certain you know, I'm still low, a lowly, uh, a lowly junior faculty, right? But um, you know, have the station that like I've got um, a group of students that I've spent a lot of time with, and I feel like invested in their development and and them becoming independent researchers. And a lot of how I think is also oriented around, you know, thinking about like how do I, how do I how do I train a group of people to do impactful work and to develop intellectually and to develop independence? And, you know, sometimes there's, sometimes the right thing to do with a student isn't to be like, take the idea that I'm most excited about and push it on them. It's to be like, oh, the students in a moment where like the best thing I could do is actually back off a little bit because they seem to be starting to grow some, some, you know, some feet, some attitude. And it's like, maybe, maybe, maybe that's the, that's the move, right? Um, and and so, you know, it, it's interesting to be in a situation where, like, there's what am I excited about in research? There's what would be cool to build and how would it affect the world? There's also just thinking, like, how do I create an ecosystem here where I'm, like, 
um, I feel good about the way that my students are developing and I feel that they're, you know, learning, you know, what, what I guess something like what I think are like the right values and skills and, and, and just also just getting to getting towards their goals. So I don't know. It's, 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 it's kind of that weird mix. I mean, the other side of it is that, you know, it's just the field's been this absolutely crazy time and being a junior faculty when you're first adjusting from, you know, I'm working on this one thing that I'm like totally tunnel visioned on. And I think that that's my natural mode, or at least it was for a long time. Um, and then I think because, because I maybe was naturally overweight on the like, kind of, I got to a point where I had a lot of tu- intuitions and a lot of, you know, maturity and independence on terms of writing papers, um, but did not have the ability to like scale up as much in terms of like, I can't, I can't do all of the implementation for five, you know, research projects simultaneously. I kind of moved a little bit into this advising role a little bit earlier in my career than maybe normal, also because I was older when I started. So I think there was a natural age difference that made younger students feel more comfortable coming to me for advice. And, you know, then they're just moving into that role for a little while. But like now, now it's like I've got teaching responsibilities. I've got um, some amount of investment in in the, the health of the department. And, you know, that includes like hiring. There's also like I got I've, I have the I've got you right teaching classes. I've got meeting my students. There's random fires to put out. And then there's like the fact that you know, you go down that path so, uh, so aggressively to get to the point, or at least I think a lot of us do, who wind up on the other side of the great filter, that uh, it's very easy to like completely lose, you know, I think there's some people who are very well adjusted or whatever, but I think there's a lot of us who like at some point completely lost um, some sense of like, just having like a I don't know, a life or a healthy life, right? And so, like, some part of my head now is actually coming back to that. Like, some part, like, there are some days where, like, the thing I'm most excited about is playing music. It's not that I'm starting to do that again. There, you know, there's some days where, like, the most exciting thing going on is that, like, I just got to a new level at, like, the bouldering gym. It's like, I suck, but, you know, I'm better than I was, like, a week ago. Or, like, like you know, um... And, and I think that settling into that thing of like, this isn't like a, you know, I don't know, taking, taking the time to get a breather, to, to come at it fresh. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, I don't know, like that's a, that's a much more like meta thing or much more dialed back thing. But sometimes like there've been, there've been periods where I've had a few areas where like, I know I can pump out in an area but I don't feel particularly like inspired in doing that or something like that. And, and in, in those cases, like, you know, sometimes the thing I'm most excited about is reading, you know, it's like, I want, like, that's what I need. It's like, I need to, I need to, I need to shut up and, and I need to take in more information and put out less or something. And, and what I'm excited about is just sort of like hitting reset or, or getting back to that place of, getting back, like, you know, it's really the opposite of your question. It's like, what are, what are you beating down the path on it? And like, I've got a few of those in research directions, but then some part of my head, the thing I'm most excited about is like recovering some of that, that kind of like some of the wonder and possibility, some of the, like, 
stepping back and looking at the like you know and, and I think some of that like necessarily has to be cyclical because like once you know once you like get a fish on the line it's like actually you know like like you go through periods it could be months it could be years where it's like you're in execution mode um and at the same time you know it's like there's the field is so broad now and there's so much stuff going on and sometimes I feel like I'm losing touch with and I think it's just inevitable. I don't think it's like I'm, you know, like I've, I've gone through it enough now that I realize it's not like, oh, like, it's just me, I'm losing touch, and I'll never get it back. But it's like something slipping. Like if I'm if I've got like some line of research and like four or five like directions open, and I'm like completely tunneled visioned on that, then it means that it's like there's whole other spheres of literature, where like I'm not paying attention to the new papers that are coming out. I don't know what people are doing. Um, I'm executing more than I'm reading or something like that. And then and then you have this moment of like, wait a minute, like I forgot how to do something. I forgot how to code certain things. I forgot how to do some math. I forgot, I don't even know what like new papers are in a certain area. And then you, you step back and you kind of retool and, you know, I don't know. So, so, so I, I think it's just like a mix of all of it. And I think the weird thing about being a faculty member is that you're spread so many ways, you know, that like, it's it's almost like you're having multiple personalities like i've got you know there's there's the and and, and the students by virtue of being a little bit more single tracked help to like pull you really deep into one of them so you know i think there's some days where you know maybe i have a few hours i'm meeting students all of whom are working on these causally structured distribution shift problems and then have a couple hours all focused on things related to like clinical decision making or like risk prediction healthcare or assessing like disparities and it's like the thing that I'm like wildly excited about at like 11 a.m. is very different from the thing I'm wildly excited about at like 2 p.m. And then at some point it's like seven and you're like, I can't, I, I want to, what am I, maybe, maybe I'm wildly excited about like, you know, like reading a book about Charlie Parker or like, you know, watching some Netflix or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's all over the map. But, but I, I do think, you know, I guess if I had to put my hat on one thing, overall like or at least one framing it's that you know i think almost all of the promise of this technology is sold on the basis of really powerful predictive modeling and it's really powerful predictive modeling like as assessed on these sort of like mostly separable realizable problems and like mostly iid type settings and that nearly all of the promise of these technologies, like as it's sold outside of a few narrow applications where, you know, it really is a matter of just doing like some classification where everyone knows how to make the decision. If only you do the classification, right? It's just something that needs to be automated or something like that. That in so many of these settings, like clinical healthcare, it's like, you know, like you could develop 9,000 risk prediction models, but like that's not going to revolutionize healthcare right now. You know, it's like, it's not to say that there's no value in that, but it's like, Ultimately, you need to just figure out what better treatments are and you got to figure out how to make better decisions and you have to guide action and you have to be able to do it in a way that's responsive to um, changing environments. Like you're dealing with COVID data, it's a real humbling moment, I think, to say you train a risk predictor based on data from, uh, you know, a year ago and it's just going to be wildly off for predicting, you know, outcomes a year later Um, and the disease is evolving and, the de-affected demographics are changing and they're changing in response to, you know, mutations, they're changing in response to the, the background sort of like 
um, immunological kind of priming that people have from like vaccinations and previous infections or changing a response to, uh, you know, lockdown and like mitigation procedures as policies update all over the world. And like, we just don't, we don't have a mature discipline that tells us how should I take all the data out there and ultimately guide policy decisions, guide treatment decisions. So, you know, moving from sort of like prediction in a static world to decision making in a dynamic world is, you know, I think broadly that's the dream. But, you know, that subsumes a, a really expansive, you know, set of research topics. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it really does. Um, and I'm excited to see where that continues to lead you. I guess to close out, I just want to thank you for um, all of all of the work you've been doing. I've been a huge fan of your work for a while. And I'm, I'm very excited to see your paper come out this evening and, and whatever else comes next. And thank you for being so generous with your time and chatting with me today. Yeah, great to meet you. And uh, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for sticking with me through all the uh, uh, the internet connectivity. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.